Hello and welcome to this latest edition of the podcast of United Christian Parish, Conversations in Color. And together with our Director of Communications here at United Christian Parish, Kate Hoeing, and myself, we welcome Sarah Casey from Cornerstones. Sarah Casey has the awesome responsibility with Cornerstones as its Director for Faith-Based Engagement and Community Outreach. Also, in our closing uh, reflection, I look forward to sharing with you in terms of just some thoughts about the recently concluded uh, summer worship series, Won't You Be My Neighbor? So again, welcome to Conversations in Color. Welcome to listeners to Conversations in Color. The mission of this podcast is to advance the story of United Christian Parish through its social platform that provides dialogue with respected leaders in our nation's capital and its surrounding communities. Our intent with this podcast is to share the impact of our guests' work and their efforts in terms of the organizations in which they are part of to provide solutions to the important issues of our communities. And in production of Conversations in Color, I need to say that it could not happen without Kate Hoeing, who is the Director of Communications and the Director of All Things Great at United Christian Parish. So hello, Kate. And hello. Uh, we here at UCP, uh, we are grateful to you for your dedicated presence. I had this written down, but I say it either way. <laughs> yes, thank you, Pastor Marcus. I am super excited to be here with you and Sarah. Thanks, Kay. And you just mentioned Sarah, and uh, we want to say welcome to Conversations in Color. It's our pleasure to say welcome to the Director for Faith-Based Engagement and Community Outreach at Cornerstones, Sarah Casey. Welcome, Sarah. Thank you. Thank you both so much for having me here. And it's it's lovely to be back with the UCP family. I think it was, oh, geez, I don't even know what month it was. It was a little while back where I got to spend a Sunday with you guys. So I'm delighted to be here. It was a beautiful Sunday. And uh, the flowers were blossoming. The music was playing. And the people were dancing in our hearts and in our spirits as Sarah blessed us with the sermon that uh, we will continue to remember here at United Christian Parish. Oh, Sarah, thank you. you're welcome. And in March of this year, uh, Carrie Wilson, the Chief Executive Officer of Cornerstones, was the guest on this podcast. And our listeners learned about Cornerstones as an organization founded in this community of Northern Virginia, uh, initially as the Reston Interfaith. And recently, Cornerstone celebrated its 50th year of assisting individuals and families in order to move towards greater stability and self-sufficiency. And it is indeed a pleasure to have you with us, Sarah, and indeed to learn a bit more about the work of Cornerstones. And so for the listeners of this podcast, uh, would you describe your role as Cornerstone's Director for Faith-Based Engagement? and community outreach. 
I would be happy to. And I'm grateful that you said all of those words. It's a very long title. Um, <laughs> I sometimes just say all things faith related and getting involved in cornerstones because it's there's a lot of commas, there's a lot of hyphens. It's yeah. there's there's a lot happening there. Yeah. <laughs> um, so my role is a relatively new one here at Cornerstones. Um, as you mentioned, we started out as Rest and Interfaith over 50 years ago. I think I did the math and bear with me because I was a humanities major and it's our 53rd year of service that we're in right now. So delighted to be doing this work still. And, and as you said, it was founded as Rest and Interfaith. So a group of um, Christians and Jewish communities came together and said, we're really worried about our neighbors. We're worried about what it's like to live here, how people are able to live here or not. So what can we do when it comes to affordable housing, homelessness, and, and other issues that are facing our community? And so as you can imagine, in the last 50 years, there's been a lot of growth, a lot of growth in this area, a lot of growth with our partners. And one of the things that the leadership um, has been thinking in the last couple of years is where can we engage better and more deeply with our faith partners. You know, those people that have been with us from the beginning, whether it's our founding partners or partners who have come along and worked alongside us in the last 50 years. So what can we do to show that we value those partnerships and to also deepen them? And so I, I think I'm, I like to think of it as a one-stop shop for all of our faith partners. If you at UCP or any other church, temple, shul, mosque in our area, want to get involved, um, you call me, you send me an email, and I can help make that happen from volunteering at the shelter to being part of our advocacy team. I really am excited to learn what our faith partners' missions are and what their values are when it comes to community. And I get to, I'm like a kid in a candy store, you know, I get to play around in this and say, ooh, okay, this congregation over here cares about food insecurity. This congregation over here cares about homelessness. And how can we help you live that mission in the way that you feel called? Because I think that's an important part of, a, of faith traditions. And especially in this area, there's so much affluence and whether that's finances or of time, um, people who have that call are looking for places to fulfill it. And so I get to be the one that helps do that, which is so fun for me because it's, I grew up in this area. I used to intern at Cornerstones. Um, I have a master's in theological studies. And so I feel really strongly that faith communities are perfectly poised to do this. And, and so to be able to be that kind of connector and, and conduit to do that is honestly my dream job. And I told HR this after they hired me. So I felt like it was okay to, to say it once I'd had the, the offer in hand. <laughs> I didn't want to lead with it. I didn't want to seem either too eager or yeah. is she just saying this? You know, maybe she's just saying yeah. this, but no, very much. This is the joy of this as a new position is that I get to kind of come in here and say, what about this? Have we thought about that? What did we do when this happened? And I get to work on all of our teams, our development team, our communications team, our advocacy team, our volunteer team. Um, so I just, I get to go around having a lot of fun most days. Hmm. Well, thanks, Sarah. So a follow-up uh, to, that, to that first question, what has impressed you the most about Cornerstone's impact upon the Herndon Reston communities? That is a great question. And I think I'd have to start with longevity and reputation. Um, those are two things that when our neighbors 
think of cornerstones. I think they think those two things, I hope they do at least, that we're an organization that has been around for quite some time. And from that, I take, we're not just existing, we're doing the work. We exist in proximity with our neighbors. And that's something that I find really impressive in terms of a social service organization that we're not existing on a different tier from our neighbors. We're not distancing ourselves from them. We're deeply embedded in the community. You know, we have the Herndon um, Neighborhood Resource Center. We've got Connections for Hope and Rewrecker Shelter, our ASAP Pantry. And we've also got um, a few different neighborhood centers within some communities in the Herndon Reston area. And so the fact that we are proximate and part of our community is something that is really important to me because I think it's important when you do social service work, not to swoop in, not to make decisions for communities based on what the latest academic data is or what the latest trend in community service is, but how do we authentically listen to our neighbors and take that feedback and provide support and support informed by our neighbors, not just oh, I'm Sarah, and I think this is what Reston needs. Mm-hmm. That's that's not going to help anybody. But if there are ways that we can listen to our neighbors, ways that we can elevate those concerns, whether it's through advocacy, through working with elected officials, um, I just think that proximity and that reputation that we've gained by being proximate and by being a longstanding nonprofit in this area is, is something that makes me proud to work here. And also attracted me to work here, that this is a, an organization that doesn't shy away from existing in community. And I think that that's sadly rare and more and more rare in a lot of um, community engagement spaces. Yeah, I remember, and this um, was, uh, Sarah, you were, uh, you may have been been born at by this time, but uh, when I initially started working with the ministry, it was called Crossroads uh, Ministry. It's now uh, nomenclature is uh, Crossroads for Anti-Racism. Oh, but okay. they were based in uh, racing Wisconsin and uh, Chicago. And it was one of the first of this type of organization that was really doing significant work. And I say this was about 30, 30 almost 40, 40 years ago. Uh, I was introduced. Sarah to, wasn't born yet. I was going to say, give me a year, Marcus, say, I and I can tell you how old I was. Uh, but uh, but so so I came into to some familiarity, beginning to work with them about uh, twenty five years or so. And I was alive for that. You yeah, were alive. You were okay. You were alive for that. <laughs> and so when they began to do this work, looking at uh, institutional racism. Mm and poverty and uh, beginning with uh, groups in Louisiana. Um, And when you go to those communities and those impoverished communities, those communities that have been um, pushed aside in so many ways and stepped on in others, you don't go to those communities and say, we wanna do a power analysis. And yet, that's exactly what this this group did in with Crossroads. Uh, they went in and they 
worked alongside of the folks who were in those communities. And what they talked about was the big foot mm. of racism mm. that steps on those communities, yeah. that kicks those communities. And that's how they came up with the way of, so to speak, a certain relevance mm. of how they were gonna be able to go into and work alongside the folks in those communities and to talk about those issues that we are, have so much familiarity with now when we talk about uh, diversity, equity, and inclusion. And they were looking at this and working with these communities, you know, almost 40 years ago. And so that's what really impressed me when uh, they talked about it in the same way that you just did in terms of uh, longevity and, and integrity, because it's the name. And, that, and people associate the name of Crossroads with the work that's happening in our communities. And, and so, you know, when you said that, those two things, uh, you may not have used the other word integrity. I think you may have used a different word, but longevity. And what was the other word you used, Sarah? I think just proximity. And proximity, yeah, yeah. Well, and to what you're saying, nobody's going to make you a plate if you come in and say, hi, we're going to do a power analysis of this community and what the issues are. And I think, you know, I want to be part of communities where somebody does want to make me a plate and I can make somebody a plate of, oh, okay, here's this person that's genuinely concerned with my welfare, my well-being, and not in fixing it the way that she thinks it should be fixed, but understanding what the lived experience is so that we can elevate this together and from a place of authenticity that might actually have impact on systemic change instead of niceties and platitudes to make people feel like they're doing change-making work. But what I, I believe that systems work, systems change has to be done in community and has to be done with vulnerability and with authenticity. And those are not easy things for humans, let alone for organizations to do. And so the fact that churches, the fact that nonprofits are not always going to get that right, but if we approach it with humility of, hey, I recognize my privilege, I may not recognize all of it, but I'm here to listen. And to do that active listening of listening to understand and not listening to respond, I think that's something that that we could all benefit from, quite frankly. Great. Great. Uh, Sarah, the, the name of this podcast is Conversations in Color. And it's a metaphor to describe the in-depth discussions that tend to have lasting impact upon our lives. So most of the issues in our lives that we process, uh, they don't exist as obvious contrasts, black and white. Uh, there's gray. But then because of these many issues that we must consider, they're often textured richly, you know, with complications. Okay. Those complications give us even more colors, you know, okay. and uh, the greens and uh, the blues and uh, the hazels and some of the other different colors that we come in life. And, and so that's the sense of the metaphor uh, of our conversations with our guests. Uh, do you remember your first conversation, your first true conversation in color? And if so, with whom was it? 
And as a follow-up, what was the discussion? Yes. So I I have a funny answer and I have a real answer because you you can't invite me to come talk without me trying to make jokes. So just, you should have anticipated this. (laughs) Well, that's one of the things that I I really love about you is your your humor, Sarah. And and so uh, go ahead and tell us. So my my funny one, my short funny one is I grew up outside of Boston um, with parents that were not from the Boston area. My dad's from Kentucky, my mom's from Miami. So my parents don't have Boston accents, but I've always been a a very unintentional mimic. And so I was in the car with my mom one day when I was about four or five. I said, mama, I'm really confused. I, I have a question. And she's like, okay. I said, we live in Andover. But my best friend Renee lives in Andova. What's what's that about? And so it was the first time that in my head this like, huh? People talk differently. Uh-huh. People aren't the same. You know, I have these two parents that don't in my head don't have accents. But when you're living in the Boston area, if you don't have a Boston accent, you have an accent. Yes. And so my mom pulled over the car because she was laughing too hard, and she was like, "Okay, how do I explain?" colloquialisms and regional dialects to a four-year-old and so she just didn't say anything she was like yep that's correct you live in Andover and she lives in Andover Mm -hmm. that's right so that's the that's the short funny one but in in all honesty um you know in North Carolina we say the challenge for us is the diphthong right Mm. you know we when you put two vowels right next to each other uh you know what do we do with it you know, y'all, you know, all y'all, yeah, yeah, you know, what, what do we do with those, you know? (laughs) Well, see, in in Boston, they drop ours from where they should be, and they put ours where they shouldn't be, Uh so it's, um, you're, you're out of luck, no matter which way you, you throw it, um, but around the same time, so I, I grew up in a family with a, basically a stay-at-home dad, which was something that not a lot of my friends had experienced. Um, even today, I don't think is is super common. Mm-hmm. My dad would, would make me qualify this with saying he was finishing a PhD. So he, he was working, air quotes, sorry, dad. Um, he was working, but he was also at home helping raise my older brother and me. And we lived in a tiny apartment outside of Boston. My mom worked... Um, at the Hewlett Packard factory. She was a production manager. And so my parents were were frugal. We lived within our means. And I one time I asked my dad, I said, Daddy, are are we rich? And I don't know why I asked him this question. I don't know if I had just seen some, you know, commercial on TV for the latest thing. And I was wondering, hey, how come we don't have that? I, I genuinely don't know. But I looked at my dad and I said, Dad, are we rich? And to his credit, he he could have looked around this two-bedroom apartment that was garden level, probably no more than 700 square feet, where he was getting a stipend, but he wasn't working a, a labor-intensive job. Um, well, certain types of labor-intensive. I don't want to offend anybody currently or previously having done a yeah, PhD. Yeah, yeah. Um, and he could have looked around this tiny apartment and said, look around you, kid. Does, does this look like richness to you does this look like what wealth looks like and and he just said yes he said yes we are rich and it wasn't until later that he qualified that with me until I got a little bit older of you know richness includes the quality of your relationships the safety of your household the 
ability to go where you want to go when you need to go to access things that other people can't access. And so kind of going back to proximity, I, I think he thought, he explained this to me later. He said, in proximity or in relation to some of the people we went to church with or went to school with, no, we weren't rich. But if you take into account our place in the world, our place in this kind of global citizenship that we are part of, we are incredibly rich. And and he says, I was like, okay, cool. And just walked away. But <laughs> it's it's one of those family stories that sticks, you know, of here I was at four or five trying to make sense of richness, poorness, poverty, wealth. What do those things mean and where do I fit? And, you know, to my parents' credit, they they were honest. I, I think, I think deeply honest that they took stock of their environment and of the life they were providing for my brother and for me and said, yes, yes, we are rich. There's, there's so much here. And I just, I really credit that for handling a very um, intense question from your four-year-old when, you know, I was probably watching Teletubbies and just non sequitured over there and said, dad, are, are, do we have money? Are we, are we of wealth? And he yeah was able to kind of put that in the gray, you know, put it in the, it's not this or that, it's and, um, and how that, that type of conversation is necessary. And, and I appreciate that he didn't go into an economics lesson and mm -hmm. draw me some graphs and stuff like that. Like he, yes. he just answered it and, and we moved on, but it's, it was, it was, I think that really was the first time I noticed, okay, there's, there's differences in the world and we're all trying to make sense of where we fit into those. Um, and so I, yeah, I'm just, I'm grateful to my dad for handling a, a fastball question like that pretty well. I think as, as parents, um, those are the moments when, when our children, when they have that consciousness mm. for for the question that we have to be willing to be as honest yeah. as we can possibly be and yet to be as considerate mm. for the innocence that's still yeah. there. Mm -hmm. And it sounds like your parents and in particular your dad in that instance uh, did you one of the greatest services that a, parent, that a parent could do and uh, to give you that kind of a foundation. Yeah. And uh, so I want to lighten, uh, lighten the, the moment for us just a bit. And, Let's do it. Um, and so we have a, a segment that is uh, called Take Two. And that's a segment where uh, parishioners of UCP are invited to use two minutes or thereabouts to tell their own stories of being a part of UCP. And each story will be a parishioner's response to the following questions. Who are you and what attracted you or your family to UCP? Hello, my name is Debbie Holiday Phillips. I became aware of United Christian Parish right at the start of the pandemic. I had just finished a six month session online myself facilitating a session on Jamar Tisby's book, The Color of Compromise. 
And after that, I was really intrigued by the topics and I wanted to continue the discussions. And so I just did a Google search and I used the keywords racial conciliation on Zoom. And that's how I found United Christian Parish Church. I started attending the services on Sunday with the Walk in Faith. They were talking about the same kinds of topics that were of interest to me, which are topics related to diversity and, and racial unity. I attended every Sunday and two years later, voila, I'm still here. It's, it's just that simple. Uh, Sarah, for, for you, I would like to share a question. Would you rather? Mm -hmm. Now, the intent of this question, as I said, is to have a bit of fun with you. And in playing this, uh, this game, would you rather is a segment that's dedicated to my kids. And the reason that is somewhat of a dedication to them, uh, both of my kids are now adults, um, is that during their adolescence, we would imagine these scenarios. And usually it was two scenarios and you had to make a decision between one of those two scenarios that you were given. Sometimes neither of the two scenarios seemed any good. <laughs> And sometimes both scenarios seemed especially good, but the task was always the same, Sarah. You're given two possible scenarios, but you can only pick one. Therefore, the question, would you rather? Mm -hmm. Let's go. Ready? Mm -hmm. All right. Yes. I, 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 I see the, the, the enthusiasm is just coming <laughs> through. So the first one, Sarah, you have the opportunity to share a walk in conversation with the late actor and comedian, Robin Williams, along a path in Peru. Mm -hmm. Second okay. question, the second scenario is that you are able to share a breakfast in conversation with the late author and theologian, C.S. Lewis at the Rock Cafe at the campus of Harvard Divinity School. All right, Sarah, your answer and the follow-up question to your answer mm -hmm. is always, tell us why. So I almost feel like you shot yourself in the foot here, Marcus, because you said <laughs> you wanted to lighten the mood. And huh? I'm, I'm here to tell you that in this incredibly difficult choice, um, I would have to go with taking a walk with Robin Williams in Peru. Um, I okay. got to go to Peru in high school. Um, our Spanish department would take a trip every two years to a Spanish speaking country. And so my senior year, I was lucky enough to go on the Peru trip and, and we spent a good bit of time in Cusco. And again, history major, humanities person, that's my jam. And humor is part of my DNA. And so, Robin Williams is a, a fixture of my childhood, you know, whether it was Mrs. Doubtfire or Flubber or Patch Adams, yep. Dead Poet Society, when you get a little bit older, hopefully your kids aren't watching Dead Poet Society, I wouldn't recommend it. Um, <laughs> but I, I think I'd, I'd have to choose that because 
Robin Williams has a quote, um, and I should have written it down, but it, it says something like, the people who feel most deeply are often the ones who care the most about making people laugh because they don't want people to experience that loneliness on their own. And, and for me, humor is not just my coping mechanism, but I, I, I like to get close to people through humor. I like people to feel kind of a little bit less pressure in an interaction. And given the, what we now know of what Robin Williams carried with him through his life, mm -hmm. to have an opportunity to talk with him about what vulnerability and, 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 and feelings are like for people who often put up this armor and this wall of, oh, it's all fine. I'm making you laugh. I'm going to do my bit. I'm going to do the song and dance. I'm going to make you laugh. And we're not going to talk about the deep stuff because mm -hmm. we're just here to have a good time. I'd, I'd love to know from, from his perspective, as somebody who felt deeply, what can we be doing better or what can we be doing differently to make it easier for people to talk about stuff like that, for make, to make it easier for people to bring depression, anxiety, sadness, grief, whatever it is, to conversations mm -hmm. in ways that we can all hear that and, and not say, oh, it's Robin Williams. He's, he's the funny guy. He can't really be feeling that. He's always feeling jovial. He's always feeling happy. And I just, I identify with that so deeply in terms of it's, it's people who feel the feels that want to make people laugh and there's a there's a really awful um meme that goes around that says my trauma didn't make me stronger but it made me funnier <laughs> and I think that having an opportunity to talk to somebody whose life's work was making people laugh but who also carried that weight of deep emotion um I I would relish the opportunity to pick his brain on that. I can pick up any book and read C.S. Lewis's theology. And that's something mm -hmm. that is still very valid and, and worth exploring. But I think on that human interaction level to have a chance to dig inside his mind and, and to be vulnerable would be um, just incredible. Just honestly, so, so cool. Yeah, C.S. Lewis. Um... You didn't see the humor in the screw tape letters? Well, I just, I mean, you do screw tape letters versus flubber. How are you going to like, <laughs> that's that's a kind of an easy decision to make, Marcus, that if you're really putting those two on the table. <laughs> or like you've got, you know, the humor of a Mr. Tumnus and things yes. like that. But yes, again, yes, yes. you you put Mr. Tumnus and Mrs. Doubtfire next to each other. And I'm sorry, I'm a child of the nineties. I'm going to go, I'm going to go with my gut and go with Mrs. Doubtfire. Well, what is it? Mr. Worm, Worm, what was it in, in screw tape uh, letters? What was the, the Latin name? I can't, oh. Mr. was it Wormwood or I can't remember. That uh, sounds right. So, yeah. With the, the questions there, but, um, but, but what is the, the phrase? I digress. But um, I think with comedians, one of the things I remember, mm -hmm. uh, one of the, the better of the comedians was the discussion of how the work of comedians is to give us life and to give those examples of the rawness of our mm -hmm. experience for us to look at ourselves. 
examine ourselves, and then still have the power to laugh at ourselves. And I think that Robin Williams was truly one of the best to do that. I think that we miss those moments when we fail to ask how in the world did that particular person find the strength as well as the insight to create a laugh from this particular moment. You know, when David Letterman was able in his show, you know, a few days after Mm 9-11 to be able to, to bring an audience to laughter when people were still wondering, is it okay to laugh? You know, um, and and there's so many other examples of it, but it's it's the the in the church is the 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 true pastoral work of when uh, a, a ministry is able to allow, and this is me. I'm not speaking on behalf of UCP, but when a ministry is able to allow a group of people who have been taught to think, and most often, unfortunately, in churches, to think incorrectly, to think theologically immaturely Mm -hmm. about certain topics. And when a ministry is able to help a group of people to actually look at themselves, look at what the history has been, and then to be able to laugh and then to reason and to say, this is how we go forward. And even Jesus Christ did that. Well, I I was having this conversation with my mom the other day about if if we as Christians believe in in Jesus's humanity and divinity, Jesus laughed, Jesus cried. There's, There's so much to think about there in terms of if we want to, to live in the likeness of this figure, or if Christians want to live in the likeness of that figure, that includes the capacity for vulnerability and vulnerability for laughter, as well as for change. And I think that in, in any work, especially related to justice and to quite frankly, heavier topics, there has to be that vulnerability and I, I didn't really understand humility until a few years ago. I, I grew up in a church and so, you know, you humble yourself in the sight of the Lord and then you have all the, the chorus that follows that. And I think just putting, putting your own baggage on the table and saying, I'm just going to leave it here for right now. Let's talk about it. And hopefully when I leave, it'll be a little bit lighter. Um, but having the, the common understanding of we're all going to show up to this with vulnerability. We're all going to show up to this with humility, I think is a, a foundation of, you know, improv comedy and places where you're trying to, to get the laugh. But what does it look like if we flip that into, I'm not trying to get the laugh. I'm trying to get people who are diametrically opposed to things to come to the table and say, Hey, we all find this interesting. We all find this funny. We all find this sad. Let's, let's discuss. And I think that's, um, I think that's a power of comedy that should also be um, part of part of our conversations. Mm-hmm. So basically, Robin Williams should 
should still be here and he should tell us how to fix societal problems. I think that would be, that'd be all sad. He'd do it in a funny voice mm -hmm. and we would all be better for it. <laughs> I would love to have had the opportunity to invite uh, Robin Williams oh my for, for um, a sermon at United Christian Parish. You would have had to film it because for people, if they were just listening, they'd be thinking there's 50 people on stage right That's now. That's right. That's right. Giving me a, a kind of <laughs> Greek chorus of, of a sermon right now. And it's really just Robin Williams doing 50 bits. That's and right. Just incredible. Just you had you had a good joke on Sunday, Pastor Marcus. Ooh, tell us. That's why the chicken crossed the road. This was right. Was it part of the sermon or right before? You know, actually, <laughs> it was uh, an extemporaneous type thing. And um, the kids were having, that was one of the best examples of laughter and fun wow. at church. The, uh, the kids, they, they had a song about laughter. And within the song, there were, why did the chicken cross the road jokes? And so when it was time for me to begin the sermon, one of the first things that I felt like I wanted to do was to encourage what the kids were doing. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So, so my, my, my first words were directed towards the kids who had just done this. And I figured they had not heard this, why did the chicken cross the road pun? Why did the chicken cross the road? One of them heard that on the dinner menu was chicken salad. <laughs> <laughs> did the kids love it? Did they love that? My wife, who was sitting near them, said that they did, <laughs> said that they did laugh. But as quickly as they laughed, they came back at me. They, I got another one. Why did the chicken cross the road? So. <laughs> That's amazing. And that's so what's so funny to me about that is because you said your joke and I'm like, I have one I want to tell him. I've got one I want to tell him. And yeah. I'm a late 20-something-year-old adult. And I'm also the person who said not too long ago, we need to listen to understand and not listen to respond. And I'm sitting here like, let me tell my joke. Let me tell my joke. And it's like, okay, dude, chill. Actually. Yeah, listen. so tell us. Tell us your joke. Oh, so when when is baseball mentioned in the Bible? Four score, no. Uh, <laughs> tell us. In the beginning. In the beginning. The big inning. The big inning. Like you've got innings uh, in baseball. I so got that. I got that. I got that. I caught that. I did. <laughs> my other, my other Bible-related joke is: is how does Moses make tea? Hebrews. He brews it. Mm. <laughs> so these are free jokes that you can tell Marcus. That yeah. You, you drop those during Sunday and, and let me know how the kids respond to it. That'll be our, <laughs> our meter, our gauge for how good of a joke it was. Uh, I've, I'm, I, I could get into trouble with this one. So, yes. so, so I'm yeah. not. I'm not, I'm not really <laughs> <laughs> yeah, church, church jokes. And, you know, you're a pastor. I'm a daughter of a pastor. So it's, yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, we have a kindred spirit and a, I think a, a similar level of humor um, <laughs> that is niche, if, if anybody ever asked. <laughs> so I wanted to ask this question 
Sarah, uh, I know we're getting close to, to time. We may even be past time. Uh, but I was looking at a couple of statistics yeah. in regards to uh, hunger yes. and, uh, and those who are unhoused. And is that the is that more you feel like the proper or the more uh, uh, kind of conscious way of discussing it? First of all, uh, in terms of unhoused versus homeless. Oh, I've always wanted to know this answer. Yeah, and, I think, yeah. And, I and, think and, that's and, an awesome question. And um, one of the, a couple of things that I was looking at, Sarah, and I is that in the the subsidized public housing, I would often think about a, a, a larger group of a family, mm. uh, you know, sometimes five people um, trying to be in a particular dwelling when you talk about subsidized housing. Sure. Um, but it seems like in 2020, because of what is the, 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 the average income for, for folks who are trying to exist in this country who are living in public housing, which is around $15,000. But it's two people. Mm. Two people who are, who are, who are, who are trying to, to manage in subsidized housing. Yeah. And an income of about $15,000. Yep. So one in, one in eight kids, That'll probably go hungry today. Um, can you describe the feelings of hope that you and perhaps the many talented people around you experience as you do the important work that supports the mission of Cornerstones with the sense of what you're dealing with? Yeah. Uh, you know. I, I think that's... I think hope is critical. Hope is is vital um, in in any work, but especially in work when you're working with other people. And the thing that I value about my coworkers is that they have a unique ability to take data and and show the impact on real people. So you know whether it's at Laurel Learning Center where you see children you see kids from all walks of life. You don't go and sit and count every eight off and say, oh, okay, that one's gonna go home and go hungry. Okay, this child's gonna go home and go hungry. You see kids who are happy to be there. You see staff members who are, some of the, the longest tenured staff at Cornerstones work at the Learning Center and they've been there for decades. And so you see, hope in those interactions in that you've got a place where kids are fed you've got a place where kids are happy where they're seen where they're heard where they're supported and this isn't just at the learning center this is by their parents this, these are by their caretakers the people for whom they are out working multiple jobs to support and so it's I, I really think the fact of of turning data into what the lived experience is, is a real strength of my coworkers here, that our case managers, our shelter staff, our folks that work at the food pantry are so dedicated to being a neighbor, not just being, I'm, I'm a provider of a service, you're a client, 
but we are all humans. We are all experiencing this. Um, and what, what that can do to change your interaction is, is huge. And I think to your point about language, you know, unhoused versus homeless, um, this is tangential, but I, I'm a student of 19th century American history, especially around enslavement. And so there's a lot of literature on, on what it means to say people first language of enslaved rather than a slave. Nobody really enslaved themselves. That was a something done to them. And so I, I don't know what the literature is on unhoused versus homeless, but the, the thing I like about unhoused versus homeless is my home can be anywhere. My home can be my people. My home can be my, my church, my mosque, my temple. Um, that can be home. I might not have a house. I might not have the, the correct term of shelter around me, but I, I can still have a home. Mm-hmm. And I really think that doing the humble work of sitting down and listening to our neighbors. And I, I believe strongly in using the word neighbor. I, I don't, excuse me, I don't hear people here talking about clients versus providers. We, we, I hear my, my coworkers talk about our neighbors and that from a power dynamic standpoint is, is yeah. huge, is, is really, I hope contributing to that equity work of we can acknowledge that there's a power imbalance here, but we can also name the desire to equalize it in terms of, I live in Fairfax. I'm right next door to Herndon, you know, we're neighbors Mm -hmm. and what that looks like. But I, I, I think the hope comes from relating all of this work back to people, that it's people who listen, people who care, people who are showing up. Um, We did a, um, we had a great event over the summer at St. John Newman Catholic Church. They let us do a food distribution there with Starkist Tuna as a sponsor. And so we gave out, I think 400 families got boxes of food and something that could have been incredibly scary and a little bit shameful for some folks was a block party. I mean, I'm not even kidding you guys. We had, there was speakers. We had a um, DJ, one of our staff members, Terrence, he was our DJ mm-hmm. and Charlie, the tuna was there. And so kids would roll up in the minivans with their parents ecstatic to dance and so excited to high five Charlie. And so um, I, I take something Charlie like the that. tuna didn't break dance, did, did, did he? He, did, he didn't break dance. Did. The children or Charlie? Charlie tried Charlie, to. Charlie, but, did Charlie the tuna break, did break dancing? Um, I'm not sure if you've seen a tuna fish try to break dance recently, Marcus, but it's no, um, no, mechanically it a little difficult. It sounds, uh, yeah, it sounds odd. <laughs> yeah, I, I wouldn't blame him for, for not being able to complete that. But <laughs> but you had kids that were smiling. You were These kids weren't afraid. And you had right. families being treated like actual people and not just numbers or not just people in need, but, Hey, how you doing? How was your weekend? What are you guys up to this weekend? Oh, did you want this box? We've got this one that has this. What are your preference? Oh, kids, did you high five Charlie? Why don't you show us your dance moves? And just the, the fact that we can move from something that society sees as transactional and hopefully move it to relational is, is something that gives me hope. Mm -hmm. Um, and and truly, the, the dedication of the people I work with is nothing short of hopeful and inspiring because 
they show up every day and they make differences and they do it with such passion that encourages me. I mean, I get to be, I get to be in both worlds here of helping volunteers and donors and people who want to get involved with their neighbors and with their neighbors who want to get to know other people as well. And so it's, um, it's really a, a privilege and an honor to be in this role and, and to work with the people I work with, but also to get to know my neighbors. I mean, that's, that's something that I wouldn't have the opportunity to do, but if you drop something off at the Embry Rocker shelter, if you volunteer at a food distribution, you're going to meet your neighbors. There's no, no question about it. And so it's, um, again, that proximity is just life-changing for everybody. And I, I get, that's a very long-winded answer, but I get hope from that, Marcus, that that's, no, that's no it's, 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 it's a heartfelt, um, honest answer, uh, to the question, Sarah. And as you were speaking, I thought your, your words, again, your words that mean so much, okay? Transactional and transformative. Yeah. And as many of the different uh, organizations, agencies that, mm -hmm. that I've worked with uh, in terms of church, church life and, and, sure. and church revitalization. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And one of them in particular I'm thinking of is, is Hope Partnership. Okay. And Hope Partnership talked with one of the congregations that I served. They talked with us about the distinction between transactional relation, transactional leadership, mm -hmm. which is in a sense, you're dotting the I's and you're crossing the T's. Sure. Okay. But in organizational life, you're dotting the I's and you're crossing the T's, but is it really providing a language and a way of life mm -hmm. that is transforming? Mm -hmm the communities in which you say that you care about. Uh, right, right. And, and that's the difference is because transformation means transparency. Yes. And it, and, and, but it, but it, it also has to do with uh, being willing to make the different uh, translations mm -hmm. from the organization to the community and vice versa. And to say, I might get this wrong. I might be mistaken. And that is something that, again, back to the humility, back to those vulnerability of, as an organization, we're not going to get it right all the time, especially if we're not listening. And so I think that's such a critical piece. And, and one of the reasons I'm really glad to be here and glad to be this kind of connective tissue for transformative work across the board for, for faith communities and for our neighbors. And I think the other is we all have needs, right? No matter where we are, uh, we all, we all have needs as, as organizations, we have needs as individuals, we have needs, uh, as churches, um, as, as cornerstones, uh, as Marcus, as Sarah, as Kate, uh, and when we are able to do as we, as you've, you've, you've shared with us, Sarah, to, to be honest, to be humble, mm -hmm. be transparent. Um, and that's what makes us stronger. And I think that's a part of the challenge that we have is 
as leaders uh, of, of communities, um, Cornerstones, United Christian Parish, helping people to understand that the word, I believe, is true, that it is in our weaknesses that the strength of God is made more apparent and also more available for all of us to, 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 to receive. And to and, share. And to, and to share. share. And to yeah. share. Yeah. Yeah. Thanks, Sarah. Um, I'm not going to keep you. <laughs> and for our listeners, this is an inside joke about this particular idiom that Sarah and I uh, have laughed about uh, with uh, her first visit to UCP. Uh, it was during our coffee fellowship, which like many churches, after Sunday morning worship, uh, folks are provided an opportunity to fellowship among themselves, to meet and to greet and to network and enjoy refreshments as they do so. And uh, Sarah and I had the opportunity to talk about that real meaning of uh, <laughs> I'm not going to keep you. And Sarah, what did we discover about that? Do you? So between between I'm not going to keep you and I'm going to let you go. Yeah. Those are are two idioms that I think we we on the first glance think, oh, okay, that's really great. Thank you for thinking of my time. Yeah. But when you flip it around, you're like, oh no, that person's trying to leave. Mm-hmm. <laughs> that, that person wants I've to go. go. I've got to go. <laughs> oh, they're so concerned about my time that they're taking away their own. Huh. And so it's, it's that polite but not polite way of saying, yeah. Yeah. Um, okay, I'd like to leave now. And yeah. don't. <laughs> and it's, you know, talk about transparency daughter. right yeah. Sarah it's, it's that thing where you you don't want to you know you don't want to straight up say I I need to leave because yeah. um, that's not going to go over well and it doesn't <laughs> convey the you know multitudes of I really enjoyed being here um I would like to be well invited back I do feel welcome yeah. here thank you for all of this but it's that well, I'm going to let you go. <laughs> it just seems so altruistic, but isn't. It really isn't. And I think we were explaining it to somebody who was a recent um, uh, a recent immigrant to this country. And so yeah. they, their, their first language wasn't English. They spoke perfect English, but explaining yeah. idioms of like, you know, if somebody says this to you, it's yeah. not it's not as, you know, um, humble and kind as you think it is. So, yeah. so now Marcus and Kate, you guys are both going to be in trouble with your parishioners if they, yeah. they listen to this and then they catch one of you saying, well, let me uh, yeah, I'm, gonna, I'm not going to keep you. Yeah, I'm not going to keep you. I'm, I'm going to let you go. <laughs> Thanks, Sarah. Um, Thank you guys. This has just been wonderful. And I thank you so Sarah. excited that I got to do this and, and, you know, could talk for, as you've seen, could talk for hours and mm. just well, love you, the I hope, I hope that, I hope that, uh, that uh, we're going to see each other actually uh, very soon. So I hope so and, too. And, and thanks, so thanks for the work that you're doing at Cornerstones and in the community. Yes. Thank you, thank you Sarah. Thank you both for, for making this happen. This is, I was telling my coworkers, I shared the questions with them and I said, these are just such thoughtful questions. These are, are, are questions that, aren't yes or no answers, mm-hmm. but are deeply invested in what the answer is and, and not for superficial reasons. Um, 
I showed my parents, you know, I was just telling people, I was like, I'm so excited to talk about this. Like, this is thought provoking and in the best ways of, I'm not going to tell you the right answer. I'm going to tell you my truth. And, Mm -hmm. and we all get to decide what that is and and how that fits in our life. So thank you both for the Mm -hmm. intentionality you put into this podcast, into these conversations. Well, you were our guest and it was important to hear your thoughts and uh, your interpretations, not ours. Well, you've made that mistake twice now, Marcus. So let's see if (laughs) if there's a third time. (laughs) And now as a wrap up for this podcast, I offer this reflection. One translation of Proverbs chapter 18, verse 24 is friends come and friends go. But a true friend sticks by you like family. Recently, we concluded our summer series at United Christian Parish, Won't You Be My Neighbor? There are various kinds of friendships. With each one, we should try, as Jesus did, to be friendly and kind in our interactions. And if we desire to have an authentic relationship with God, then we need to examine our relationships with our neighbors, honestly. As Christians, our fellowship with Jesus, which should distinguish our ethics and moral character, is the glue that binds us together. Friendship described in Proverbs as a friend sticks by you like family takes quite a bit of effort, and often the results of such efforts provide opportunities for healthy relationships in all other aspects of our lives including healthy churches in our neighborhoods, which is what United Christian Parish in Reston and its community is inspired to do. May the truth and sincerity of Jesus Christ draw us together as friends and neighbors. And I look forward to our next broadcast of Conversations in Color.